Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, my name is Jeff Boucher, and this is Mindspace. I'm here with Maya St. Clair, and this week we take a look at the future of comics. It's an ongoing conversation here. Uh, this week the guest is Jordan Plosky, and he runs a, co a company called Zoop, which is a crowdfunding platform uh, that handles everything for comic book creators. When I say everything, I mean admin, uh, pre-order production, fulfillment, marketing, and etc. Uh, of course, Kickstarter is a big force in comics uh, in recent seasons, and Zoop is hoping to make their mark in that same sector. But we'll be talking to Jordan not just about his company, but also about the state of comics, the state of distribution, the future of comic book companies, the majors, and, uh, and also just the exciting possibilities of this digital era. Um, so let's get right to it, and we'll talk to, again, Jordan Plosky from Zoop. You know, this is such an interesting time for comics. It's such a, a kind of a challenging time for comics, uh, for stores and for publishers. Um, is that is that an opportunity for you guys, or is that a challenge? Well, that is the opportunity. That's what. Mm -hmm. That's why we we started this. You know, because when the pandemic hit, we kind of saw. All right, you know, stores are closing, uh, the distributors down, so nobody's getting new product. This is trickling down, and then you. I mean, you know, for people who are going to be listening to this, this is going to get pretty geeky on the business side of comics. So uh, at least for a little bit, you know, and then you had DC's move, uh, moving away from Diamond to Lunar and uh, UC, UCS, or whatever, whatever it was, it's Lunar now. But and all of that had a trickle down effect on the industry. So my co-founder, Eric Moss and I, uh, Eric comes from IDW. Uh, he was at Cryptozoic Entertainment for a little bit and most specifically for what we're doing, he was the project manager on the number one uh, all-time highest grossing comics Kickstarter ever, uh, the Keanu Reeves Berserker campaign. Oh. All that to say that we really saw, okay, there's an opportunity here because there's going to be multiple publishers, multiple creators who are looking for alternate methods of distribution, alternate methods uh, of putting out their own work. And we really took a look at that talk to a bunch of creators, ask them point blank, like, hey, what's, what's your, what are your pain points right now? And kind of took all that information and utilized it. Eric at the time was going to be consulting for people's uh, crowdfunding campaigns. And we, we, me with my background, which was I had another startup before this, I just said, you know what, forget that. Let's just build our own platform and provide all the services necessary for people to run a successful campaign. And that was really the genesis of Zoop was last summer you know during the pandemic yeah it's it's um it's the comic book distribution and uh and just the uh the direct market 
um, you know, it's such a fascinating and, and kind of Byzantine history uh, going back. I mean, I know that that it saved the comics. It saved comics, I think, at one point in the 80s. It, it certainly, you know, there was a great value. Um, but but then, um, you know, I think once comics lost their their foothold on the newsstands and in drugstores and, and, you know, the uh, 7-Elevens and all that, I think that that's really when um, you know, the, the entire marketplace just became really, really fragile in a way. It's interesting. I mean, you, you had, you definitely have your different camps nowadays talking about the industry, you know, the people saying, yeah, it's, it's going to collapse at any moment and, and look at what's going on with DC and now Marvel's owned by Disney. But then the, there's a whole other segment that people, I shouldn't say people that most people are not looking at and that's kids and young adult and manga yeah. is exploding so, right. I mean, technically all those things are comics, but because it's not like Marvel or DC or it's not superheroes and capes, people aren't necessarily looking at that. But the industry is incredibly healthy. I mean, it, you know, if you take a look at the charts year after year, after year the industry is doing well. And I believe, you know, compared to, to a lot of other, you know, industries, comics weathered the storm, you know, when it came to the pandemic, a lot of shops pivoted to online or curbside pickup. They really did what they had to do in order to to survive and yeah, yeah i mean co comics are never going anywhere i know people are always like oh digital is going to kill comics well that clearly didn't happen right you right. know people love the collectability they love the tactileness of it the the smell of comics yeah. so there's always going to be a market for it yeah it's it, it is intriguing you know the um well the 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 collector market that you you know uh, that you're talking about that's that seems to be almost entirely like the Marvel DC superhero stuff, you know, as far as the real collectability, but, but I, I understand the point, you know, uh, you know, you're right. There's so many things out there that aren't considered comics per se, when people talk about the health of the comics industry and such, uh, you know, the different, different format, uh, you know, trade paperbacks and, and, and the manga comes in all kinds of non-traditional shelf configurations and, and it's, it's not right to not count that. I mean, it's obviously hard. And, and then also to, t to tack on to that is, is crowdfunding. You know, yeah. comics is the largest category in crowdfunding for 2020. Or I should say the largest growth uh, in their category. Excuse me. I think they grew something like 70% in the year 2020. Um, mm -hmm. But there's something to be said about that. That was another look at, you know, to your earlier question. It's like, yeah, there is an opportunity here. There are more and more people going towards crowdfunding as an avenue to get their content out there. It's becoming more and more relevant to uh, consumers, buyers, purchasers, collectors, users, whatever we want to call them, as a legitimized format, a, a legitimized way to, to get your product. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating, too, the, uh, <clears throat> with the, the explosion in... Um, you know, television streaming, uh, and the, uh, the, the, you know, the emphasis on kind of reaching out to niche, uh, audiences in a way that never, we've never really seen before. We're seeing things that are, uh, shows and televisions, uh, television series that are really ambitious and, and servicing like kind of, uh, you know, uh, segments of the fan, audience I've never thought would see a TV show. Like I never, no one in the world that read Doom Patrol when Grant Morrison was writing it thought that there would be a television series with, yep. with those characters and that world and that vision. And, and, uh, 
um, you know, and, and speaks highly of, of the television golden age that we're in that things like the boys and invincible and, and uh, you know, so many, I mean, the, you know, Harley, Harley Quinn over on uh, well, all the DC stuff, the, the sure. recent swamp thing, all those things. Uh, it, it's a fascinating time. So do you think a lot of people will see the promise of, of what you're doing as the best way to do a storyboard for a TV show? It's definitely an easy way, right? I mean, all right, if, you, if you're going to create a comic, right, there's maybe there's a handful of ways to get it out there. You could do everything yourself and not really have a distribution method, which is kind of what crowdfunding is. Um, you know, you could try to go through a publisher, but then, and no disrespect to publishers, but they have to gatekeep in a way, you know, there's a quality controller, there's understanding what the retailers will, will purchase or understanding what diamond will purchase. And if you don't fit into that category, that might not be for you as well. So Zoop is sort of like a pseudo publisher, pseudo distribution method. I, I've done a few other interviews and we really can't like knock, like lock down what the word would like, if you had to choose one word to describe what it is we are, we're just like a, this amalgamation of things because of all the services that we provide. We haven't gotten into that yet, but like as a creator, crowdfunding is now seen as proving your market, proving the concept that you have, proving that you have a fan base, you know, proving that you have the follow through as, as a creator, as an individual that you have like the heart to go through with the project, all, all things like that. And so what that can lead to is potentially someone from like a Netflix or Amazon, you know, scouring Kickstarter and saying, Hey, this one did great. It got a lot of buzz. I read the story. It's cool. Let's go talk to this person. Or conversely, you know, a publisher could be looking at Kickstarter. I know, you know, there are publishers out there that are picking up properties and then re-releasing it through a traditional publishing schedule. And yeah, we're fine with all of that. So it's it's almost like the independent film route then it's becoming like, you know, you know, if you get a, uh, a screening at a festival, uh, and you know a uh, you know somebody like studio that. execs that sees yeah. it and they're like yeah. yeah we want yeah exactly it it kind of is it you know I don't want to call it minor leagues but it's almost mm-hmm. here's another step you can take to get your work out there right. you know to increase your chances of success mm. that's interesting and then is there you know one of the things that I, I always thought you know maybe it was too um, uh, specific of a distributor too narrow of a distribution um, channel. But I was always surprised that like Marvel and DC didn't try to do more advertising like in their pages. And I know sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. A lot of it was house ads, you know, it wasn't paid ad. Is there any application in what you're doing if you uh, had advertising available like a set number of pages to appear in projects that are built on your, your, your platform? You know, the idea of advertising is definitely something that we've discussed, whether that's, you know, it, within the pages of a book of one of the projects or whether it's on our website or even, you know, the idea of sponsorships. It, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, advertising Budweiser or, you know, some some brand. It could be something like, hey, we want to make sure that this campaign that this comic, you know, makes it, we, we like the creators or we, we like their message and we want to get behind it and we can sponsor it. So there's, there's a few different ways that we've had conversations around what, what you're asking. And admittedly, you know, we haven't even launched yet. So nobody's throwing money at us just yet, but should we grow the, the platform and be a success? Those are conversations we would love to have. Absolutely. 
yeah. on behalf of us and, and our creators. Yeah, because now as you say it, I hadn't really thought about it in the uh, sort of uh, kind of solitary sponsorship, which is probably a much more logical and, and uh, manageable way to go about it. But yeah, I could see like in the way that Vans has a warped tour, they, they might want, you know, a warped comic or a, a comic book that has time warps in it. You know, or Absolutely. Or, or yeah, their logo on the book or a thank you or just being associated yeah. on, the, on all the social media. I mean, there's so many different ways to, you know, to discuss sponsorships and, and advertising and marketing for other, you know, uh, other companies. But yeah, absolutely. As a company, that's something that we're thinking about and that we don't actually see on other platforms either. So not only does it benefit us, but it would benefit the creators that are coming on board. And what about, you know, um, one of the great things about comics is that it is typically um, collaborative uh, mm-hmm. creation. Uh, you certainly have a lot of people, a lot of artists uh, that become writers and um, either at the beginning of their careers or eventually, you know, like Mike Mignola or Frank Miller kind of grew into it, or you have people that just from the get-go can do both, um, or like Jack Kirby or, you know, Jack Kirby. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, do you have a, a, a part of your uh, approach to this that uh, kind of takes into consideration that there might be a writer in Iowa or an artist in uh, Spokane and that maybe they want to collaborate? Is there, there's a, is there anything that's sort of matchmaking about it? Not yet. Mm-hmm. I, I, Again, something that we've discussed, but right now we're really focused on already established creators uh, because right now we're, we're more of a, of a concierge service, right? So uh, a curated service, if you will. Um, you know, we're only running about three, anywhere from three to five campaigns per month. And that's because of all the services that we provide. So just real quick, I mean, for people who are doing a Kickstarter, if you've never done one before or you've heard about Kickstarter and you're not necessarily sure, like what's the process? Well, it could take, you know, someone two to three, even four months just to get their campaign live. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into it before the campaign goes live. You have to figure out what's your budget. What goals do you need to reach? Uh, if you do reach that goal, how are you dispersing that money? How much money do you need to budget for printing? How much money do you need to budget for fulfillment? Are you going to spend any money on marketing? Are you going to be the person running this campaign all by yourself? Or are you going to bring someone in and do it for you? That's a campaign manager. So now all of a sudden, you potentially need to hire four different people. Right, right. So, so now that takes months of research and sourcing and vetting and negotiating and figuring out who you're going to put together on this team. And you also have to oversee all these people because theoretically, you're probably paying them up front. Where Zoop comes in is we offer all those services you know, under one roof and we take our cut on the back end, meaning if the, if the campaign's not successful, we don't get paid. So we're highly incentivized to, you know, work our hardest to make sure that that campaign gets across the goal line so that we also get paid. And that also takes the oversight of a creator, you know, on the team, takes it out of their hands because quite frankly, we are incentivized all on our own. Yeah. And, and what this does is it saves these creators months of time so now they could be doing more work for higher stuff they could be working on their next project instead of you know doing the full-time job that is running a crowdfunding campaign so yeah it's we just save so much time and effort and one of the things i like to pat ourselves on the back about is some of our launch campaigns we have everyone from people who have never run a campaign before 
and they were intimidated by it and they saw it as this behemoth you know amount of work that they just didn't want to tackle and one of our other campaigns they've run five or six campaigns already and they're like you know what i no longer want to do this work i'm happy to to hand it off to you guys so i think that speaks to what we're offering is the fact that like you know whether you've done kickstarters before or not we are certainly able to help out wow and lettering you always gotta excuse me there has to be a lettering person there has to be letterers i always think that that's fantastic that there's somebody that can letter i'm trying to be funny it's not working uh, (laughs) i I get it i don't know if i don't know if your audience is gonna get it yeah 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 exactly well the uh um I think because I had a better chance of drawing than I did having uh, legible penmanship. I was always more <laughs> impressed with lettering than probably you know the average comic book reader. But uh, you know, what about uh, uh, what are you finding is the stubborn kind of sticking point that you're having to get past with people? Is there is there a thing that you're hearing uh, a type of skepticism or a uh, a common assumption that is uh, one that you have to kind of disabuse people of? Absolutely. I mean, the fact that we're going up against someone like Kickstarter, really, who has millions of of visitors every month. Mm -hmm. And everyone seems to think that because Kickstarter has millions of visitors every month, that their project is going to be purchased by millions of people. You know, that's not the case. You know, unless you are specifically like one of the handful of campaigns that Kickstarter chooses to be, uh, a project they love or, or a featured project, most likely you're going to get zero time on their homepage, zero discoverability. Mm-hmm. So the, the misnomer really is that what, no matter where you do your crowdfunding campaign, 85 to 90% of the people who are coming are from your existing network already. I see. So that's, that's a little bit of the uphill battle is people think that there's this community at Kickstarter that people go to Kickstarter to like browse and see what's new and then just be like, ah, this looks good without knowing who the creators are it really doesn't work like that. So with us, you know, the fact that we only have three to five campaigns per month, you, your campaign is going to be featured throughout the duration of the campaign on our homepage. We're going to be promoting the heck out of it because we need it to be successful as well. I see. Yeah. Cause there's, it's uh that's one of the, the uh, interesting cruxes of the digital age, right? Is that you have access to everyone, but it's like the tower of Babel. I mean, there's no, it's very easy to get lost in the crowd. It's very easy to, in the din, the most difficult thing is to, to be heard. You know, Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah. So, we're, you know, we're, we may be a smaller pond, but, you know, all the fish are going to be there. It's all right. the same fish, whether you're with Zoop or, or another crowdfunding platform. So, sure. Um, yeah, a lot more visibility in our smaller pond. Definitely. So is, you can get an Aquaman. I think uh, fish Aquaman. There's something there. You can, you can, you can work on that. I wouldn't be opposed to doing an Aquaman uh, campaign. I'm just saying that. Yeah. DC Comics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what? Eventually, I mean, like, when when there's like a market segment that's growing so fast, it's really hard to ignore. Mm-hmm. And whether you're DC or Marvel or something like that, I mean, look, we I, for those who, who might not even be aware, like Marvel has kind of like dipped their toe in. They have their thing called Marvel Made. You know, they did a, uh, an enamel pin set. They did a, a Chris Claremont special edition X-Men book, you know, and that was kind of like a pre-order type thing. Like, hey, if we get enough backers, we're, we're going to go to production on this thing. Yeah. You know, so people are aware. It, it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a definite no, you know, from, from some of these larger companies. So 
look, we've been having conversations with everybody within comics outside. Of, like, I mean, we, we've, <laughs> the cool thing is, and I can't say any of them on this podcast, but like we've been having conversations with mega corporations who are interested in maybe not everything that we're doing, but they see practical applications that can match up with their needs as well. And hey, that, that's what it's all about is oh, how can we help, you know, how can we solve those pain points and, and be that solution for people? Yeah. Well, the, when you mentioned the, uh, you know, like, uh, Marvel dipping their toe into, to their toe into the, the, uh, the concept, you know, that's, yeah. Tailored production, you know, with, with built in guaranteed appeal, like of a certain measurable amount from fans for exactly for, you know, IP that you already own for them. I mean, that's, there's no risk there. I mean, that's like a, a certainty, I can see a lot of corporations being interested in that kind of stuff. Exactly. It's exactly what it does. It de-risks the proposition, right? So instead of going into production on, you know, 20,000 units of something without knowing what the market is like, now you have a good indicator. And, you know, if there's 2000 people, maybe you make 4,000 because, you know, it, it all fits. You get a price break depending on, you know, what you're producing. If it's a comic, if it's a toy, a statue or, or pins or whatever, you know, and then you have some more product to sell down later, you know, after the campaign is over but yeah i mean it really de-risks the platform it de-risks that product and it's not just marvel you know hasbro has has labs and sure. it's the same thing and they they do millions on their campaigns right you know the, uh, yeah. if you're familiar that razor crest campaign that they did for the mandalorian this is this is a 350 dollar toy and i think they had something like twelve thousand backers wow. you know do do the math like yeah, that adds up. That's a success. And there, you know, there are plenty of people without toy deals with Hasbro that, you know, we're happy to talk to as well. So. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that, that is sort of fascinating. And you can see, I mean, especially somebody like uh, anyone that has a significant social media footprint uh, that's a creator, you know, you can see them starting to ask themselves, why do they, if, unless they want to work with the IP, you know, like unless they want to do, they want to write Captain America or, you know, do a story about Batman or something like that, then, you know, you have to wonder, like, if you had a new, uh, brand new, just out of the box uh, innovation of your own, like a new new character launch, you know, it'd be kind of hard to go to Marvel or DC with it uh, at this point because of the, all the opportunities elsewhere in a way. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you're familiar at all with, you know, the stories of people who bring their creations to a Marvel or DC, they're not very well compensated. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to speak out of turn or speak ill, but, you know, maybe you wind up with five or 10 percent ownership of something that you created whole cloth versus maintaining 100 percent. Now, granted, 100 percent of nothing is still nothing and five percent of, you know, potentially millions of dollars, you know. So there's something to be said for both models. But, you know, if, if you're someone who wants to maintain control and and keep that creative integrity on your characters on your ip you know crowdfunding is certainly one of those ways to go without giving up a percentage to anybody yeah and um you know liam sharp the great artist uh who does green lantern and and had done brave and bold and, and yeah he Man just crossed i think he just crossed a hundred thousand on his campaign just crossed a hundred thousand on his campaign i'm writing the introduction for that book that's great because uh, he's a friend and um uh so I was watching that with great interest and I, and I know that he was, uh, you know, gobsmacked. I mean, I think he just, he didn't anticipate it 
because he, the, the, um, I think for some functions of just his humility, because he's just <laughs> a wonderful guy, but he's a humble guy. Um, and uh, he fosters his social media almost intuitively. There's just his nature and the way that he reaches out and communicates with people. He's just a sort of a, a savant. I've, I've, I've seen, and I saw him saying, he's like, this is life changing for me. That's right. That's exactly I, right. I, I get it. Hey, you know, I, I would love to do that for multiple creators. That's, that's the goal. If, if, if we had a, you know, a client, someone that we're working with a creator that, that came in and they're out there involuntarily tweeting about how this is changing their life. Yeah. Oh man, that, that would be, I'm kind of getting goosebumps thinking about it. And it's like, no joke. That's, that's, yeah kind of what it's all about sure like all of us you know or many of us uh especially uh, many of us who are um you know fortunate enough to work in creative uh pursuits uh no one gets in it to stomp on art or like knock people down or you know everybody gets into it you know initially certainly um to to be part of the excitement of it all so yeah and and he's a lovely guy. He's like a really great person. So it's it's uh, it's especially terrific in his his, uh, his circumstance and inspiring for me. Just being at a near distance, for, uh, yeah. you know, just just to to see the process and what it's meant to him, you know, um, it's inspiring me to do similar things uh, to to kind of take that approach in the future because he and I are the same age. Um, it's 14 we just had very rough lives we're both 14 but um <laughs> we're i don't know man you're doing you're doing a little bit better in the hair department yeah yeah oh, yeah. great i love that thanks uh <laughs> sorry I, no, I love it i love it uh the uh um the the thing is that we get set in our ways you know i've been um writing for a living since I was 17, you know, I'm 52 now, 51, whatever, one or the other. And, uh, you know, that's 40, a good one. Yeah, I know. I, I, I actually literally wasn't sure. For, the last year doesn't really feel like a year. So like, I, I literally wasn't sure for a second how old I was. <laughs> yeah, that's not the first time I've heard that. You know, someone said, oh, last year was the longest decade of my life. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I spent a week in Ohio one day, you know, or I spent a week in, <laughs> spent a week in Cleveland one day. That's the old joke. Uh, um, but, you know, we um, having done this, you know, I mean, my first bylines were published in the 80s, you know, um, you get locked into a certain way of thinking things about things or, or maybe you uh, project a certain level of complexity or risk upon things that don't deserve either. Like, you know, because sometimes... Sure. Um, well, Liam's an interesting guy, though, because, I mean, you know, he he went on to Made Fire. That that was, you know, a risky type of thing in innovation, in technology, in the world of comics. And, you know, comics is notoriously not technically forward thinking. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, and he and I were actually on a panel. Maybe it was like WonderCon or, or San Diego Comic Con because I, I, I had founded another company called Comic Blitz. Okay. which was like Netflix for digital comics, digital subscriptions for comics. And he was part of Made Fire, And we were on a digital comics panel together. Um, but uh, yeah, the fact that, you know, to your point of getting stuck in your ways, I think Liam maybe breaks from that mold in the fact that like, all right, he found this opportunity over here. I saw what he did with that other Kickstarter. Um, 
I'm going to forget his name. It was Jeff Katz, Jeffrey Katz. Uh, yeah, exactly. Joseph Katz, the, uh, Joseph. the guy that, that, that did uh, First Kingdom. Yes. Yeah, and that Kickstarter was massively successful as well. Yeah. And, you know, and I think I, I'm only assuming because I'm not friends with him like you, and this has just turned into the let's talk about Liam Sharp. But, you know, <laughs> he probably saw like what crowdfunding is possible, you know, what 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 is possible with crowdfunding through that campaign, took a shot and then realized like, maybe sometimes like when you are one of like the like most popular artists in in comics maybe you don't think that you are like i don't know maybe you don't know or realize that you are but i mean like the guy is he's been around forever everybody knows him everybody loves his like you'll never hear anybody say like oh that art sucks or i don't like that art everybody likes liam sharp's art so the fact when the guy puts out an art book yeah it's gonna do great yeah yeah, you know, you're right. Um, I, 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 it's Jack Katz. I misspoke, by the way. Uh, the the creator that did the First Kingdom. Uh, yes. Okay. I read that when I was a kid because <laughs> uh, it was fascinating. Um, because uh, it was a time when I was especially interested in in topless uh, characters. Yep. So that was it. But then, uh, upon reading it, found it to be also very, very good, very, very well done. Um, but yeah, that's uh, the First Kingdom, which is this wonderful comics epic from um, you know uh, decades ago, and he had that revival effort that that Liam led, and you know that one and Made Fire and a lot both of those uh, to continue the Liam Sharp show, as you mentioned, is <laughs> driven by his um, his interest in in fairness and justice and and uh, artists' rights. You know, like because both of those, sure. um, I know that technology is is a you know, exciting to him, but I think his, that made fire, if I recall right, the, the thing that took him into that direction first was the, the liberation of, of art, um, as a, as a, as a life pursuit and, and you know, just as a, as a, um, a career and what that tool could do for people. Um, but you're right. It's, it's, he's, he's, he's been a long time, um, you know, fixture in the, in the business, but yeah, I don't know that he had been a level, um, a star, had the star level that he has now. And I think part of it is like, uh, you know, the high profile projects, Wonder Woman, you know, and cause he's very eloquent too when he's, when he speaks at panels and things like that. And I think people really like him and sure. social media um, is, is, has really been like a, a, a powerful tool for him. So it's, it's wonderful seeing him um, exploit it. Um, in the best sense of the word. Um, well, Liam, like I was saying, you know, maybe because for him, it was like a gradual progression into stardom. I mean, he's someone who's been around for a while, but maybe until like when he drew Wonder Woman number one. That's right. You know, but he's, he's an artist artist. I mean, he's, he's definitely somebody that everybody, like I said, everybody loves his art. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That's very well said. And, and in, in a way that we should, uh, uh, applaud because that's exactly the way it's supposed to be is like to you know uh, work on your craft and steadily rise and get bigger and bigger assignments and then and then capitalize on them by uh, handling it the right way so like that's he's if he was a musician we'd say he had the, the perfect arc because you know you tour and get better and, and sure. improve and that's what he's done a, so, a 20-year overnight success exactly exactly um we, and but let's uh, let's change the subject only because I was supposed to get him that introduction already, and so it's late. And uh-huh. now I'm afraid that all this is going to draw attention to that, and he's going to call me and say, "You know, 
if you can spend half an hour talking about me, maybe you could finish that thing. So uh, yes, Liam, it's on the way. I promise, I promise, I promise. Uh, but it's, uh, it's such a great time for, um, for uh, fans, I think, of everything, really, in, in a way. Like, I'm a big music fan. It's a great time to be a music fan, not live music, not talking pandemic. I'm saying the digital era, the digital era. It's like I can, I was telling someone about a very rare song that I really liked by Bobby Darren, a live recording that he did that, um, you know, I couldn't find for a long time. And, and I found it you know, on the Apple music service the other day. And I was so excited. Um, you know, it's a great time. You don't have to seek out imports and dig through. Uh, sure. You can, you know, still do that. But the, the access to things. But I'm not so sure if it's a great time to be a musician. Um, you know, digital revolution has kind of gutted the traditional pre-recorded music industry. You know, it's like $13 billion in 1999. Now it's, you know, under three um, um, do you think that what you you guys are bringing to the comics world specifically um, does it uh, when, when you look at the world that you're bringing that into do you see this as a great time for fans and a not so great time for creators like in music or do you see a, a different balance maybe that's a really good question I mean for fans yeah I think it's never been been a better time to be a fan the access that you have to creators on you know twitter on instagram on patreon you know uh, all these different ways to interact with you know you could email someone on facebook and say hey i love your work and you could you know strike up a relationship with them or you could purchase original art or you know sketch a commission or pick their brain or if you're a creator yourself like try to ask for feedback these are all things that definitely couldn't happen in the, you know the 80s 90s 2000s but but i mean the internet has definitely brought people closer together in that regard for creators you know specifically comic creators has um i think if you're smart you could utilize the tools to your advantage and and up your profile um i think that it it, it gives you more ways to monetize your creations than ever before um, and, and that's not necessarily just crowdfunding. I mean, it just be on the other side of that equation of the fan asking for commissions and, and, and sketches, you know, or, or writing tips, you know, I mean, there's writers who give zoom classes on how to write comics. Now there's, there's artists who are, you know, doing sketch tutorials or selling things on Gumroad, you know, as uh, templates, you know, there's letters to your earlier point, there's letters, you know, selling templates. And like, these are things that definitely weren't available before. So in the same way that comic stores were, were getting creative and savvy during the pandemic, utilizing the internet as a tool, if you're a creator and you're on your feet and you're thinking about ways outside of the box versus I need it, you know, I need a comic publisher to pay me, you know, for this project, if you're stuck thinking that way, then the internet's not going to change anything for you. But if you see the internet as a tool of, hey, I can interact with fans. Hey, I could interact with my letterer community or my colorist community or, you know, other artists, anchors, uh, writers, and then see what other people are doing and apply it to what you're doing. Hmm. I, look, I used to be a musician, Jeff. I don't know if you knew that, but I came from the music world. And now all of a sudden I'm in the, I've been in the comics world for the past seven or so years. So... Oh. So, and a lot of those skills transfer over, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was an independent musician. I was a freelance guy. I played drums for a lot of A-list artists and did tours and, and things like that. Oh, very cool. And when I stopped, 
and I started my first company, I realized, oh, like as an independent contractor, I've been an entrepreneur all along. I just didn't know it. I didn't label myself that, you know, I had the hustle. I had that all the networking. I had a, a reputation that I had built up in one industry. And I was like, oh, well, all this kind of really, you know, I, I could use all these skills to, to what I'm doing over here in the world of comics and starting this business because I've already started a business without realizing it before. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess every freelancer is a local entrepreneur, very local, like one person local. Very much, very much so. And during the pandemic, you know, a lot of my friends are still musicians because those are the people I spent, you know, a decade of my life with and without any live music and, you know, people not even getting together in studios to record, you know, a lot of these people were pivoting and, and some were getting out of music. And, you know, I put a post on my Facebook page and I'm just like, Hey, any musicians or film and TV people, you know, who, who are looking for a change, looking for a pivot, like I'm here to help. Like if you need someone to run ideas by or just talk to about like, you know, how do I get out of this industry? Because a lot of people do feel stuck. Like you've been in Hollywood for a long time and, and you know, you get to a certain age and you're just like, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Well, I've been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years. And so I had some people reach out because I kind of explained, I'm like, hey, I've been where you are and I made a pivot and it's not impossible. You have a ton of skills. So for any, any creatives who are listening, you know, and, and you're not happy with what you're doing, you definitely have more skills than you think, you know, to go and do something else. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think um, you can feel as we're, you know, at this point in time, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic, um, you can feel that there's a wind at people's back, at least the uh, the breeze of optimism uh absolutely yeah maybe maybe uh at the very least the the stirring breeze of practicality that it's got to somehow be better it's got you know it's got something's got to improve you know so like uh the only way uh to go is up kind of uh aspect for some people but it's it's funny too the the, the amount of people coming back uh out of this time um with a different uh, frame of reference regarding their workplace and their their attitude toward work and their attitude toward the place where they work. You know, a lot of people don't want to go back to the work or don't want to go back to the, either the same job or to the same traditional workplace. Um, that's a, sort of a fascinating thing. And, and, and along with the brick and mortar changes that we're seeing in retail and, and comics world, you know, a lot fewer stores than there used to be. Um, do you think we're moving away from, you know, uh, actual live uh, workplaces and gathering spots and hubs like that? Do you think that that'll that'll continue, or do you think it may kind of uh, pendulum swing back? I mean, I'll tell you, the pandemic was that was the catalyst for me to form Zoop. Our yeah. team is completely remote. I don't see a time where we're ever gonna move people into one city to all you know, report into the same office. I'm sure I'm not the only person that started a business during the pandemic, you know? And I'm sure that there are plenty of, like I just saw, <laughs> I just saw this article on, uh, I think it was Business Insider. Etsy just purchased this, this app, I forget the name of it, but it was sort of like a combination of eBay and Instagram, I think they called it. And, 16 year olds are, are making money off of it. You know, the point being there's more technology available now 
coupled with the fact that like you don't need to go into an office. You don't need to commute for half an hour or an hour each way every day. You know, so much more like I, I think we've all seen from the pandemic, like you can do a lot online with Zoom. You know, I think you're going to see a lot less international travel for meetings. You know, you're going to see a lot less just domestic travel for meetings and things like that. On a personal note, the one thing I really, really miss, though, is cons like going to San Diego Comic Con or going to New York Comic Con. New, like I'm looking at New York in October and I'm like, is that too soon or can I? I'm fully vaccinated, but at the same time, I'm like, do I really want to go? Like, do I want to be indoors with lots of people? Are they going to, you know, are they going to uh, mandate masks, which I'm for, by the way, but like, are people going to, you know, actually yeah. do it? And, you know, there's too many, too many questions and variables, but like, for me, if like I could choose to have like one thing back, it would be conventions. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I see. I, I, um, you know, I've worked at the LA Times for like 21 years and then, yeah. and then worked for Entertainment Weekly and Deadline. And, and when I worked for them, that was remote. And, um, and I found that, um, um, you know, I, I, the thing I miss most is newsrooms um, because <laughs> I realized how um, kind of my process was that I, I didn't really know anything. Really. <laughs> but I, I was surrounded by really good people and, and I could audition my ideas all day long. And, sure. and I'm, I'm kind of being facetious, but kind of not. Like I, I um, you know, I would write these stories and, and I would kind of walk around and talk to people about it. And that process, even if it was just hearing me, I don't even know if they were saying anything back, but just the act of telling them was part of my process. And, uh, and I haven't been able to replace that yet. Uh, or like uh, find a, a, a suitable kind of a, a thing. And I find that when I'm at home, like when I'm not working and when I'm working, those things are much closer together now than they used to be. Like when I had to put on yep. a tie at one point and go drive to an office and go in the office, I knew I was working. But now I kind of don't know when I'm working and I kind of don't know when I'm not. And I'm always kind of in between. It's, it's a, a lot more amorphous. And I'm just, you know, I fear change and I lash out against it. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, I think people mistake what we're going through right now as working from home. We're not working from home. You you are quarantined, you know. Oh, no, no, I know. I, yeah. yeah, you know, like yeah. Working, from, working from home, like I've worked from home before, you know, I, I started my last business working from home, but right. working from home is also like, I'll go work for a few hours at Starbucks or but yeah, yeah. I, like, I love the library. Like I would, I'd go to the library and work just to like be around some other people and go check out the graphic novel section and sure. things like that. Now I'm home all day, like with That's my cool. wife and my kid was doing like, she finally went back to school, but she was doing homeschool. Like it's, it's a different vibe than just like yeah. working, working from home. Yeah, it's house arrest. You're basically, it's like being a third world dictator on house arrest. Like it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, but you know, you can't really, you know, go. Yeah. Um, there's no snipers, but you know, but the, somewhat similar. The funny thing is though, like if you look at comics Twitter, you have like all these artists and writers being like, I haven't really noticed anything different. Like, yeah, right, like right. before, you know, before the pandemic anyway, like working solitary on a project in their studio and, and that's it. Solid. Yeah, covering your face all the time when you leave. Yeah, it's like being. Yeah, I've been. A, that's like being a writer for years for me. Yeah, of course. Like, uh, you know, you avoid contact and uh, you, you eye people suspiciously and 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 cover your face when possible. Yeah, it's. Uh, 
Yeah, because like I when I was talking about all that working from home stuff, I was a lot of that was pre-pandemic because like you know when I was working at EW and stuff. So, but it's just the, the amount of work and you find yourself kind of um, hunkered down sometimes. But it's just it's more the uh, the collaborative nature of it. I just like people. I get energy off of people, and and um, I like Zoom just fine. But it's um, totally it's still a little. It's it's not quite. It's you know I like the exchange of ideas, um, and I think collaboration is a real north star for me. Sure, I think personally myself, you know, like again from being a musician and working for so many different artists, I've always kind of felt like a little bit of like a chameleon. You know, like you have to act one way for this artist and act another way for this artist. Right. And and so I find myself being able to adjust, you oh. know, to the circumstance. I think of like either at home or in the office or whatever it is. And just, you know, figure out the way forward. Yeah. Uh, not Look, not everybody has that. Like, I, I totally get that. Um, yeah. But I think I've definitely learned a little bit about myself in maybe I am a little bit more introverted than I ever thought I was. So... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is, I guess, it's the, uh, we look into the Zoom mirror and we see ourselves, right? We see our reality. So um, All day, every day. <laughs> fantastic. Well, so what's, uh, you have a lot of um, uh, exciting projects, specific projects lined up with this, with Zoom. Yes. Tell me about one of them that uh, you want to make sure our listeners hear about because uh, they'll, uh, they'll find a, uh, something in it that you find exciting yeah well the first campaign that we're launching with on june 7th is a comic called slow city blues uh five issue series completely done uh we're gonna have it in a variety of different formats so you know five single issues we're gonna have them in a slip case uh we'll have a hardcover as well uh there's original pages of art you know for sale one-of-a-kind pages um doing commissions from the, the art team um early bird special. And one of the cool things that we're doing is that uh, for everyone who backs the campaign, you're entered into a raffle. Mm -hmm. uh, and that raffle is for a page of original art. Wow. That's very exciting. So not only can you, you know, get the book or get some of the variant covers that we have. Um, but yeah, you're entered into a raffle to win a page of original art. And I think your odds are, you know, fairly good. I mean, even if a couple thousand people come in, that's better than winning the lottery, you know, billions of, well, not billions, but you know, tens of yeah, millions yeah. of people playing and all. Yeah. Astronomical. Um, yeah. It's not astronomical odds by any means. Um, and, and, that's very and, cool. What, what about NFTs? Is that part of what you guys are doing as well? It's, it's, it's funny. It's not off the table. It's, it's not anything that we're doing right now. Um, I think that the backlash specifically in the comics community has kind of guided how we're going to treat this for the time being. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, the environmental impact of NFTs and blockchain is going to get much better very soon. Yeah. And, I, and I feel that like when everybody is kind of, ugh, man, I, I'm going to get in trouble here. But like when everybody starts getting outraged about something else, you know, like it'll be more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Acceptable, I guess, to, to partake in NFTs. I think it's great for creators. I think once there is no ecological impact, you know, regarding the creation of, and the minting of NFTs that I think that, yeah, we have an opportunity and a marketplace to allow these creators to, you know, earn even more money than ever before with NFTs. Yeah. You know, look, I have a daughter. I love the planet. I don't want to do <laughs> anything that's going to kill this planet. You know, I don't, I don't want it to make it sound like that, but at the same time, I recognize the upside for it. 
you know, taking it back to Liam, like the life changing ability that this potentially has for some creators to really, you know, make an impact on their lives. Mm-hmm. So well, ev- think- eventually, yes, I, I do believe you'll see NFTs on Zoop. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to applaud your your bold stance in favor of the earth. I think that that's good. Thank the, you. Uh, I'm glad you don't want to destroy us. <laughs> that's bold. <laughs> I, I like living here, you know? Yeah, I got a kid. It's okay. I'm not trying to kill us. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, uh, NFTs seem to me like a, a souffle that's not quite fully baked. It's that's kind of half-baked half baked at this point, but it, uh, it'll, and I'm, when it's fully baked, some people will say it's, it's just that, that the whole concept is fully baked. But um, it's, uh, I know that there's technologies already kind of coming down the pipe that uh, will, um, you know, uh, soften and, and uh, if not all but eliminate some of the, you know, major environmental qualms, which are all appropriate at the time. Yeah, I, I, I'm not 100% sure of all the terminology, but I believe like layer two Ethereum is, is one of those things that's supposed to, if, if, if not eliminate it completely, drastically reduce, you yeah. know, the impact. Did you know that the rapper Akon has his own um, Bitcoin called Acoin? And I believe it's out of Africa. And I also believe it's carbon neutral already. Wow. Oh, that'd be interesting to see how that was achieved, you know? Yeah. Uh, but tough, when you actually have the word con in your name, even if it's spelled with a K, as I know yep. it's spelled with a K, but when you have con in your name, that's, that's, that's a tough sell, you know? Uh, Understood. But yeah, so the, the A coin is A-K-O-I-N. Nice. That's, that's, you know, sometimes things just present themselves, you know? <laughs> uh, that's really, really wonderful. Um, I yeah, would have I called it like acorns, like you know, squirrels storing away their acorns. But absolutely, yeah, that's right. Like our the old saying, one of my favorite sayings is even a, is a even a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. So yep. uh, that could be that could be the definition of cryptocurrency. I think. Um, no uh, kidding. You know, we're all blind squirrels, just you know, looking for those acorns. But um, <laughs> yeah, I know there's this company Alluvio uh, that has a fabric technology that a lot of people are saying will. Um, mightily reduce and, and uh, um, uh, spread that environmental consequence to the point that it becomes, uh, if not nominal, at least uh, you know uh, tenable uh, for you know sure for the, overall, uh, for the overall you know pursuit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it really compares. I mean, you know, like I see the other argument of like, well, you're on Twitter right now, and Twitter takes up. You know, and I have no idea what the stats yeah. are on any of those things. And yeah. I'm not saying that those people are right or wrong by any means. But I, no, I, I think you really are. We heard you. You're absolutely saying you're taking a stand. You know, just, <laughs> you're, you're, you're good. You're you, you're like all of us. We're 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 fumbling in the dark trying to uh, to just figure out these technological changes that come at us quick and fast. And, you know, it's hard to uh, to know how firm the ground you're standing on is with any anything. So, you know. When people say they're they're not sure or they're they're reconsidering or they've changed their mind, you know, I think we have to we have to really respect that because that usually means that they're being thoughtful. It's the people that speak with like absolute certitude that I usually get suspicious of, uh, just because they 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 well, usually I, I, don't have it. I do believe that NFTs are here to stay. I mm-hmm. do think that it is going to be adapted into so many things in so many different forms that we're probably not even thinking about right now. Like if you look back at you know the internet. 
you, you see all these memes on Twitter like every day, like Bryant Gumble being like this internet thing, or yeah. David Letterman being what like, so what am I supposed to like? What I can listen to a ball game on the internet? Why can't I just go on the radio? You know, and so it's it's laughable now because it's so ingrained in our society that I I do think that we are going to see the same sort of thing with NFTs. I can't explain to you every pl- practical application for that for it at the moment, but I think once we get past the the uh, environmental impact of it that yeah it's going to be a lot more prolific than it is right now yeah i agree with you i agree with you although i should should also point out for my listeners that i've invested all my money into typewriter repair and travel agencies so <laughs> wise investments jeff wise yeah, investments i got my finger on the pulse of uh, technology let me tell you um yeah no i think i think you're right it's it's one of those things it's like kind of a train coming around a curve you know you could I, that's how for me like um you can kind of see it kind of coming but you can't make it out you know like you, you the sense of that it's around this well, it, bin is there that saying like building the wings as you're falling kind of thing wow that doesn't sound like it's going to work <laughs> <laughs> well, well you got to do everything that you can to make it work i think is yeah. that but well, yeah uh, i guess screaming would be a waste of time so okay yeah, yeah. i mean I th- it, it, nfts are really interesting to me like I, I've, I've done a lot of research into it because i thought it was something that we were going to do but then when we saw the outcry we were just like all right let's put a pause on this yeah but, yeah but i think that we've already hit a bubble right like it was it was all the rage for like a month or two right you know and now all of a sudden you see this like steep decline but i think that that just weeded out a lot of riffraff and now you're going to start seeing like more practical applications for it as opposed yeah. to people paying 70 million dollars for a jpeg you know right right yeah exactly the extreme the extreme outliers will are seem to be like a bid to create a, a consumer collector's market that by you know by instantly just add water and you know um you know here give me that money i'll give it right back to you but we'll act like it didn't happen i, I mean i think some of that's like it's kind of a scam but i think uh, a lot of that pullback is just due diligence people like yourself that are uh give uh, you know take pause when they they hear that there's environmental consequences and i think you know some of those environmental consequences yeah if you if you say uh, you know going to target or uh yeah go if you go to target and buy uh, um, a payday candy bar like you could figure out the amount of the carbon footprint on that isn't just you driving to the store and buying it uh, you could telescope that accounting out totally. you know all the way back to you know the peanut farm and the trucks and the, the water and the and you could create a number that would make it um untenable to buy that payday candy bar but i'm still going to go buy it and do eat it because i really like it it's like our choice actually so i I do think that you're correct and you know for a writer i do for a writer i do think that there's something there for you as well i mean you know putting some scripts or ideas or past articles like originals that you know like you know, not to like stroke the ego, but like you have a fan base, man. And there are people who probably be like, hey, this would be awesome if I had a piece of something like that, that I had ownership of, you know, because I'm a fan of Jeff's, you know, and it doesn't have to be art, you know, like pen paper, you know, characters or, or anything like that. It can be the written word. It can, it can be one of these podcasts, sure. you know, it, it, or, or a package of them together. It could be you reading, you know, on an audio file, something that you wrote and now that person has this individual package a one-of-a-kind type thing from from you you know or yeah. anybody else i mean 
And that's just one application off the top of my head. But yeah, I, I, I think that it is potentially like a new revenue stream. Not quite yet, but it will be for all, yeah. for all creatives. Yeah. Well, my mom is going to, you know, probably be the only person bidding on that, but I do appreciate that. I think that that's very nice of you. Well, the other thing is, I mean, does it have to be a bid, right? I mean, it could just be a straight sale as well. I mean, there are, and there are some comic artists who are doing it very few, but like there, there have been some sales and there've been some very successful sales as well. Yeah. So. Well, it's, it's intriguing about the journalism aspects too, because I've seen it. I mean, New York times did one, but it was, that one was kind of a gimmick. I mean, it was, it was a columnist who said, I'm going to sell this column. And, and so that's people like, um, that's their, that's a vote of affirmation that this is a, area of of industry that deserves a chance you know so that that's like a feel-good vote but the associated press actually um they sold nft of election night coverage with the uh the victory by uh joe biden wow um and that was very intriguing to me and and i don't know the particulars of it like what the actual transaction and item were but i know it was uh you know it was a six-digit sale um, Which is crazy. So that means now that they are the sole proprietor of this maybe three seconds of footage. You know, I don't know if it was a front page. I don't know if it was a digital. Yeah. You know, I, so I'm a little foggy on some of the details, but um, just seeing that they had done that and that they had monetized more than one thing um, was intriguing to me. So, so uh, although, you know, my concern is, you know, years and years and years ago, I was, a, uh, when I started my career, I was a crime reporter and I, and I covered a lot of really kind of terrible things. Um, but uh, I became aware of the serial killer collectibles market, you know, which I, I kind of wrote about at the time, but wow. people, you know, really try to buy stuff like John Wayne Gacy paintings and things like that. So that aspect worries me that like, you know, if there's crimes committed live, you know, on social media or, or some other platform and that those become NFTs. Like I, I'm actually, I think that there's a real possibility for a, a negative consequence marketplace like that. They have these auctions for serial killer stuff. And I, I, I found this secret car lot, basically. Uh, there was a car lot in Orange County, California that I found out about and I got the cops to admit existed and eventually took me to um, in agreement that I wouldn't reveal it where it's at. Um, and, and I don't remember now anyway, so it was a long time ago. But the, they had the cars of serial killers. They had Randy Kraft's Toyota was there that he was arrested in with a dead body. They had Walter Bonin's van that had dozens of people killed in the back. And like, you know, and I, I went and looked in these cars and, and they kept them secret because of the very thing I'm talking about that they thought that these cars would be able to be auctioned off for hundreds of thousands of dollars because they had been mobile murder, murder scenes. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I feel like the, the things that you're kind of describing, they don't need an NFT. Right. And, and probably some people wouldn't want their name attached to an NFT anyway. They'll just want to buy it in, in, in private anyway. Yeah. You, yeah. You, I suppose you're right. <laughs> it may be like a self-correcting, um, you know, sort of, be, yeah, because that chain of provenance—that's that's one of the features of NFTs—is like seeing who owns this. And if you own a snuff film, uh, I don't know if there's le- I don't know if there's legal consequences or not, because that's not my my world yeah, right. at all. Yeah, and it's not your interest. Um, I just always kind of reflexively worry about uh, the negative consequences of things, like uh, um, after seeing that, just that that sort of aspect of it. 
but uh, I, I do think NFTs are fantastic and, and um, I, uh, the promise of them is fantastic and, and time will tell uh, how much they become accepted and how big they get. But uh, it, it is intriguing. It's like, you, you, you know, I have like, a, you know, signed a number of like lithos and stuff. And you could say that really, why is that any less, why is that any more valid as a collectible than an NFT? Because like, it's not a piece of original art. It's still a duplicated, it's just, you know, you know what I mean? I, I don't have the answer for that either. I mean, I think it all just comes down to the individual, you know? Yeah. There are collectors who are into certain things. I mean, I guess it just depends on what it is. Like for me, yeah. Look, you know, I'm an original art guy as well. You know, I have I have my pages up here. I have my. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, You're showing me a cover from a, 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 a slabbed comic book, but that's no. Oh yeah. Well, so yeah. So that's slabbed comic book, but then this is a, a page from New Warriors number eleven. Nice. Mark, Mark Bagley. I mean, that, that that's my guy right there. So oh, that's good stuff. Yeah. New Warriors was my jam as a kid. And it's for some reason just stuck with me. Like, that's fun. yeah. Do you, have, do you read it? Do you, remember, do you remember New Warriors or? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a big Nova fan. I think Nova's great. Same. You know, I always thought that they should get Ryan Reynolds to play him in the Marvel Universe because he was Green Lantern and like yeah. Nova's under the Green Lantern in Marvel. Sorry to like, you know, shamelessly plug, but one of the other books that we have is a book called Resolution and the creative team on it is Ron Mars, Andy Lanning, and Rick Leonardi. Andy Lanning, you know, was one of the writers on the, the Annihilation, uh, you know, he did the Nova stuff on that Annihilation crossover. So when it comes to Nova, we, you know, <laughs> we're definitely touching on that. And of course, Ron Mars on Green Lantern. So you bring it up, Ryan Reynolds and Green Lantern and all that. Um, yeah. So that's another one that we're like super excited about. And sorry to just like instantly go into that like whole thing, but it, it, you're, you're it totally loud. felt appropriate at the moment. You know, Nova's my guy. Yeah, no, he's great. I, I love Nova. And I remember reading it when, when I was a kid in the seventies, I really, I really liked him because I thought his, uh, his helmet looked like, uh, he, you know, sort of like an aerodynamic judge dread, you know, I really <laughs> loved, like he like built for speed. Yeah, he was just the coolest because, like, I mean, he could fly. He was super strong. He was basically invulnerable. I mean, as a kid reading that, you're just like, yeah, that's my guy. Yeah, that's I was like Bullet Man. I mean, you know, um, in the, the Golden Age, sure. they had Bullet Man and Bullet Girl. Yes, but I was trying to if it was Bullet Woman, but I think it was Bullet Girl. And they, they just had Bullet helmets that made them launch like um, <laughs> projectiles through the air, which it sounds silly and kind of was, but I think with Nova, they cleaned all that up. You know, they, they made that, he's like a, a much cooler bullet man. He's still, I think he's going to show up in the MCU soon. Yeah. You know, they had the Nova core in, in guardians, but it wasn't you know, Richard Ryder Nova. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like that. So I don't know, but we'll see. I think he's going to show up though. I hope he does. I think so. I think that'd be really great. Do you have any, um, you know, that's kind of uh, not obscure, but like, like you said, it's not a, it's not X-Men, you know, for a favorite. So do you have any um, comic book character that maybe is offbeat or obscure that you would love to see get a chance at the screen? Um, Because I have one, I have one that's doesn't really deserve it, but the first one that just came to mind, I mean, like I read a lot of comics, but, Tom King and 
Mitch Garrett's uh, their Mr. Miracle. Oh yeah. Like, uh, I mean, anything they do together as a team is fantastic, but that would be yeah. um, that. I think that <laughs> that was the first one that came to mind, but then, I mean, well, the new gods project doesn't, I guess it's kind of fallen to the wayside. Yeah. I was shocked when I heard that they were doing that just because it's so much, um, and you know, the DC cinematic universe is really kind of unsettled and it'd, it'd be a wild thing to kind of go there now. But, uh, it could have been a story. It could have been a good new, yeah, it could have been a good new beginning. I don't know. Who knows? We'll never know at this point unless they bring it back somehow. But I know Tom King was actually helping write it as well, yeah. which is unusual. They don't typically hire the comic writers to write for screen. So, yeah. I, well, I guess Jeff Johns would be the big exception because, like, he, you know, he co wrote. Yeah. You know, um, Wonder Woman, the sequel, and some and some Green Lantern and stuff. Um, but uh, you know, there's a terrible comic book character that I will say, even though it's only kind of a semi-serious answer. But I, I, I love. Have you ever heard of Brain Boy? Brain Boy is Brain Boy and Monkey Man, or no that- Brain Boy? Um, he's like uh, just he's just a kid. He's he wears shirt and pants. He never dresses up much, and he's just really smart and. Um, Oh, it, was, uh, it was like uh, I, I was it was like late 50s uh, and uh, early well actually I take it back probably 60s it was the 60s uh, and he's so smart he could fly and you know how he does that well I'd explain it to you but you'd have to be smarter to it, like, he, he can't he, he, he can't explain it it's just like if everybody was smart they could fly it's, but he's just smart enough that he knows how to fly so yes, I did know. Okay, so Brain Boy, yeah, Dark Horse revived it, um, you know, in in modern times, let's say, and they brought him. Yeah, back. that's right. That's right. I missed that. I should have yeah. checked that out. Like that's even worse. Like I'm a Brain Boy fan, like without the revival. Like I, I didn't even read the revival. Yeah. But I was gonna say you might be disappointed. It might not be what you were expecting or hoping for, and it's gonna ruin what you thought of your like your favorite thing from back when. Oh yeah, and you know I I have a bunch of them, um, and he had this his villain like the villain that he faced and he faced most often was this sort of third world kind of like a Mission Impossible TV series guy with a bad beard, you know, like how all the bad guys in Mission Impossible and the old TV series just had bad beards, um, uh, and his name it was like it was like Ricola. He was named after it sounds like he's like the cough drop, bro- yeah, cough drop. Um, I'm going to take back my answer, by the way, and I'm going to say the New Warriors. I can't believe I didn't say the New Warriors. Oh, that's a better answer. That's good. I mean, much. That's great. I would do the New Warriors in the way that they did the Captain Marvel movie and make it a period piece in the early 90s. That's smart. Like when they when they take place, that's that's when I want to see them. I don't want to see them in 2020. I want to see them in 1991. Yeah, there's a lot of things that should be, you know, uh, kind of period piece near past because uh cell phones just ruin a whole lot of whole lot of tension plot points mystery distress i mean it's so much easier for things to go wrong before people had cell phones i agree right i mean like when someone shows up at someone's door in a tv show or a movie i'm just like really you didn't call that's right right. or you can watch (laughs) he's on his phone the entire show i mean it's just him talking on his cell phone and you're like wow when did we get to this? Is like, and I like that show, but you know, um, way back. Well, it is a crazy world that we live in. But uh, um, so, when? Uh, what's the next big uh, 
entry point moment for you guys? Not entry point. What's the next big, big step moment? Yeah, June 7th, we launch uh, the first campaign. Uh, that's with Slow City Blues, followed up by a second volume of a book called Scarlet Couture uh, by a UK artist named Des Taylor. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, you know Des? I, I know the name. Yeah, I, I came across that probably uh, for the fr first volume. Actually, yeah, it goes, he goes by Des Pop, uh, and he put out the first volume through Fire, actually, so tying oh, it back it. around. Um, oh, but yeah, so, awesome. sort of like, like a 60s pinup uh, pop art style, James, female James Bond type of character, beautiful art. Uh, really looking forward to that one. And again, you know, like sketches and original art and commissions and things like that. And then Resolution, uh, the book I mentioned earlier with uh, Ron Mars, Andy Lanning, Rick Leonardi is coming out. We have a sketchbook by Bart Sears. Uh, that's going to be in July. Um, we can also mention that we're, we're working with um, Chris Ryle, uh, the former uh, CCO, president and publisher of IDW Publishing. Oh, yeah. Um, this is going to be one of his first ventures, basically, after leaving IDW uh, with a guy named Paul Cornell, uh, who had written some Vertigo stuff. He had written some TV, uh, some Doctor Who for BBC. So that's going to be another project that, that's on the horizon. Um, we have a lot more creators that we're talking to, but not everyone that I could actually talk about right now. We're on, we're on social media everywhere at we are Zoop. Uh, the website itself though is zoop.gg as in good game. So, you know, not, not zoop.com, zoop.gg. So check us out on all social media, check out the website, please sign up uh, for any of the alerts for any of the upcoming campaigns, please back the campaigns. We need your support. We love your support. Um, we appreciate your support. The creators would all appreciate any support that you guys can give. Um, yeah, so this this launch is what's next for us, and then it's full, full steam ahead. <laughs> you know, once once we once we uncork that, there's no putting the toothpaste back in. So full steam ahead, my friend. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Uh, well, that's uh, we'll we'll circle the dates, and it sounds like a very um, exciting frontier. You know, I mean, everything that you guys are pushing for. Uh, should liberate and uh, invigorate, um, you know, and and uh, spread the you know comic books, uh, the special magic of comic books. And I'm a big fan of that. So I wish you well because if things go well with you guys, that means they're going well with comics. Exactly. Very much appreciate that, Jeff. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, it was nice meeting you. And uh, maybe come back. Uh, let's let's check back in in the months ahead. I'd love to uh, keep track of how this goes and, and uh, maybe you can explain other things to me too, because I, I seem so easily confused by life. <laughs> Anytime would be my absolute pleasure. That sounds great. All right. Well, thanks again. Take care. Jordan. Well, thanks for stopping in at Mindspace. You just heard Jeff Boucher in conversation with Jordan Plosky of Zoop, <laughs> the new, comics crowdsourcing platform that we think is going to change the game. It will allow for new opportunities and artistic control and should introduce a really interesting dynamic to how comics are created in this age of the internet. It was a great business oriented discussion, which I think is important. Here on Mindspace, we often drift into the ethereal realm of, of art and artistry and aesthetics and philosophy. So it's good to stay grounded. If you think about business and art as separate, they're 
Really not, I don't think. I think that oftentimes the, the world of what is materially possible, what you're allowed to do where you are and um, what commercial interests dictate gets produced. I think it, it can often close a circle around people's artistic opportunities and what you're allowed to present to the world. And in that vein, I was thinking about given how crowdsourcing has changed everything from like movies to gaming to philanthropy, how that sort of infrastructure might have helped projects in the past. Yeah. Um, you've been covering comics for a very long time and in pop culture. And I was just wondering if we could think about alternate universes where projects that faced lots of struggles in the past might have had an easier time if they've had crowdsourcing um, yeah. or things that never saw the light of day. What what might have been had there been this internet, you know, 50, 60 years ago? Yeah, that's it's a really intriguing question, you know, because certainly there are things that um, would have benefited from from this in a lot of um, sort of trailblazing figures or or um, you know, people that challenged the norm uh, on a consistent basis would have would have been rewarded for for that. I think um, it is interesting to think about. I think maybe um, we would have seen movies. I think some movies that were real popular um, but didn't get enough traction to get sequels. I think uh, in hindsight would have done better. Um, for instance, I think if uh, you know, like Highlander, for instance, uh, is a movie that n now they're talking about remaking. Um, and uh, there was a number of, of sequels over the years, um, but not with significant budgets and not always theatrically released and stuff. And I think that, that that's a movie that falls into that category of where fans had a hunger for it, you know, um, and made it a VHS or home video hit. Um, and, and that propelled the brand forward, but not really very far forward. So I think things like that, you know, and I think, you know, there's for years, people wanted a Mortal Kombat movie that lived up to their images. I think, you know, this would have affected that uh, years ago. Um, I think you would have seen Marvel movies sooner, you know, I think, and I don't think the first one would have been Howard the Duck uh quite honestly i think um i think probably uh, that spider-man james cameron cameron movie would have happened and things like that um i've never heard about that could you could you talk about it, about that a little bit james cameron yeah uh, and spider-man yeah he wanted to do an adaptation of the marvel uh character and uh it was you know cameron has a habit um and a luxury of uh of really being able to pick his shots and doing things on his terms, which is why, you know, um, Avatar took a decade, uh, you know, in the making and the sequel is, you know, right there uh, doing the same, uh, the sequels. Um, you know, and, and he was very interested in, in the Spider-Man character and bringing that to the screen with uh, all the, you know, the unique, kinetics of that character you know spider-man moves different than any other character in in fiction i think and uh so filmmakers are often were often um you know tantalized by the idea of 
trying to put that on screen. And, and he, he famously wanted to do that. Cameron Spider-Man projects a lot like, for instance, the Tim Burton Superman project with Nicolas Cage. It's almost gathered this kind of legendary uh, aura around it. Yeah, I think, I think we probably would have seen those movies happen. So, it, uh, you know, in the mid-90s, uh, James Cameron set his sights on Spider-Man and uh, DiCaprio was supposed to play uh, Peter Parker. That was one of the most discussed caption uh, casting options. Mm-hmm. And, um, but of course it didn't get made, but it, the, the story that Cameron worked on and with different writers and, and the entire um, project uh, it's just sort of gathered this this aura, much like the Tim Burton um, hmm. how, Superman. How would here. fans, if we're talking about crowdfunding, how would they have reacted to to Leonardo DiCaprio, comics fans in the '90s? Given, I don't know. I feel like in some sorts of male-dominated swaths of culture, there's a huge antipathy towards uh, boy yeah. bands or or oh. handsome movie stars popular with girls or pretty boys or quote-unquote yeah. yeah uh that's interesting you know yeah i i mean dicaprio i i think he himself would point to you know uh the release of titanic in 97 as changing his mm-hmm. life uh and his career in, in really fundamental ways and ways that he's got you know had a uh, uh, mixed feelings about and it, you know kind of complicated uh, legacy uh, you know, it's, it was the highest grossing film of all time for quite a, quite a while. Uh, of course, that's a, a strong, positive thing. It won Best Picture. But yeah, I think it, it, it's created an aura around uh, Leonardo DiCaprio that he was, you know, uh, you know a figure of romantic films or maybe, um, you know, a pretty boy, uh, I think is the term used. But, uh, uh, you know, he was pretty... Uh, respected guy you know for his very earliest movies uh especially and then so i think if people would have liked it i think he would have been fine i uh, i think back then one of they were talking about kevin spacey was supposed to be the green goblin <clears throat> and uh <clears throat> like people like michael douglas and and uh, even schwarzenegger were attached uh, or in rumor uh none of this reached the point of being a, a script with a set filming production date it falls in that category of what could have been uh mm-hmm. i think people would love to see i mean if you go way back you know the magnificent ambersons is the great lost work uh unfinished work by orson wells you know and i think after what he had done you know we would have probably seen that finished just uh through the art house kickstarter the, the cinema uh, intelligentsia of that time and um other ones, I think, you know, we would have seen an adaptation of Lord of the Rings, a live action one, maybe sooner. Um, oh, yeah, like the know. Beatles one. Yeah, you know, I uh, you mentioned that I had somehow, I guess maybe it's pandemic or something. I missed that headline uh, in 2019 and went back and found it. Uh, you're talking about uh, that the Beatles at one point tried to acquire the film rights to Lord of the Rings, but, you know, they were stymied. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about that. I suppose they they, they did a lot of stuff with Apple, um, uh, mm-hmm. as in a- Apple Records, uh, not the iTunes one. If Magical Mystery Tour was an indication of where they were, you know, uh, creatively, 
maybe it's really a good thing. Yeah. Their, their, their cinema ambitions weren't reached. I mean, they, they, you know, Magical Mystery Tour uh, was limited. Uh, Yellow Submarine was a successful film and, and well-regarded, but they had nothing to do with it, really. Uh, it was, you know, done outside their, their presence, really. Help and Hard Day's Night were great high-energy comedies that really captured the personality of the band and showed that they put their personalities and personas in strong relief to make them this, like, pantheon. They, their other uh, film pursuits, uh, you know, were always kind of mixed bag, you know. I mean, Paul, uh, John made a film called How I Won the War uh, and got fairly good reviews, but it was, it was kind of a uh, moonlighting effort. And uh, once the Beatles broke up, then George would be the one that would have the greatest film success by working uh, with his film production company, uh, working with Monty Python, uh, mm -hmm. doing some really great, big, memorable films with them. And so they don't really seem like the guys that should have been doing Lord of the Rings. But, uh, you know, I also not sure that Leonard Nimoy should have been singing Bilbo Baggins uh, <laughs> in the 60s. But... Uh, you know, clearly I was wrong about that. Yeah, I, I can't imagine if like the Beatles had announced like, we want to do Lord of the Rings, we're gonna crowdfund it. Uh, I feel like Lord of the Rings fans would have contributed, but I'm not, I don't think Beatles fans exclusively would have. Because like you said, it was kind it would have been a distraction from their musical output. And if you're you know, in the mid '60s, a Beatles fan. Why would you want them to stop making music? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and um, if it, it was indeed around '67, I mean, that's uh, making music. That's as I think you mentioned earlier. I mean, making like really intensely creative, you know, envelope pushing music. You know, uh, mm -hmm. coming off of Rubber Soul and Revolver, and going into Sgt. Pepper, and and uh, eventually getting to the White Album and beyond. You know, there's so much there that there was so much music produced for a band that was really only a, a studio band for six years, really. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, like 63 to 69 uh, is is their entire body of work as far as the studio. And it, it's extraordinary. They had more than, you know, 240 plus songs and inordinate number of uh, hits and, and influential songs. It, also with Lord of the Rings, if, you know, if there was a band that started in the 60s that should have been making a Lord of the Rings movie or at least should have been in the discussion it, it seems like it should have been zeppelin i mean mm -hmm. they, sing, they sang about it you know ramble on is about yeah you know, mentions you know um middle earth uh folks so uh but then song remains the same is a good reason for them to never be allowed near another uh film set ever <laughs> yeah i think there's some sort of quote from robert plant he's like everyone keeps asking me about lord of the rings i haven't written about Gollum and that kind of stuff for like seven years <laughs> interesting there, there was a lot of lord of the rings in music around that time though, yeah which is interesting zeppelin and then uh pink floyd as well also had oh what um, is the pink floyd one what did they do it's uh it's 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 on their earlier album um it's when sid barrett was still in the group and uh I would have to look it up, but I do remember that they had a nod to the Tolkien universe. Hmm. It's so funny how like politically and socially conservative Tolkien was, and yet how he became, I think through the, the natural and environmentalist kind of focus of his work became an icon of 
the psychedelic hippie <laughs> progressive 60s so yeah yeah it is interesting these these guys uh these you know people with imaginations that we kind of because they are just inherently psychedelic or inherently just mm -hmm. so fantastical and immersive that they they feel uh, related like Tolkien and also like Jack Kirby you know um who, mm -hmm. They had these just like cosmic, unbelievable, towering imaginations, but they had more in common aesthetically or maybe uh, as far as the way they met the world. They seemed more like Frank Capra than Fellini. You know, they they, yeah. they had this kind of a, a traditional lifestyle and, and, and worldview that didn't match their outsized and, and kind of bonkers <laughs> imagination. Yeah. And I, I also can't imagine what Tolkien fans would have been like had they been allowed to crowdfund something and exert that kind of control and shareholding of a, of a project. Because I know that for the Ralph Bakshi version, he got like death threats about whether or not he should include Tom Bombadil and that he had originally planned for it to be much more focused and action-packed kind of like the Peter Jackson ones but he was just inundated with irate fan mail threatening him like you better not cut the prancing pony Butterbur had better be in it you have to have this song and it just grew and ballooned and ballooned till it was beyond his ability to manage yeah and you get you hate to get hit by a mace because you get the feeling that those people had like some really heavy weapons if, if they if they didn't like the movie they, they yeah could have really done some damage i looked up real quickly and uh the pink floyd uh was song was off the 1967 album which i believe was their first album uh, oh was that piper yeah yeah piper at the gates of dawn and it's the gnome uh, i want to tell you a story about a little man uh is one of the lines he wore a scarlet tunic and a blue green hood he had a big adventure oh, yes it's bilbo baggins um, so, and then let's see, uh, Rush, Genesis had a, a, a song in 1970, Black Sabbath had a song in 1970, The Wizard. So it was really in the air back then. Um, I mean, so you have 1970 for two bands and R Rush was in 75, The Zeppelin, 69, Pink Floyd was 67. Mm -hmm. So, and Uriah Heep in 72. So it's uh, and that's just like the major big name bands, not like the countless myriad little ones that made entire concept musical albums. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 Even Lana Del Rey recently released a song called "Not All Those Who Wander Are Lost." So I think yeah. that that quote has kind of gone through the pop cultural culture milieu from counterculture to commercialized counterculture to um instagram caption <laughs> yeah yeah it's a song yeah, so yeah and it's become like a etsy category probably at this point yes yes it yeah. has um it's the kind that's in cursive in front of a picture of a sunset so exactly exactly and uh you know i just remembered the, uh, the velvet underground as well if i remember right really now. yeah what what was the velvet underground's take on tolkien um Oh, wait, never mind. We, oh, okay. We're going to have to cut that one out. <laughs> I, uh, no, no. I mean, I I would kill. That's something I would pay good money to hear. To one, bring Lou Reed back from the dead. Two, have him make some oh. sort of satirical Tolkien album. 
it would be it would be good except i just misread something so i it's just not it's just wrong it's just no that's okay it was a productive misreading i'm a firm believer in those like that's that's it's one of the moments in creativity just kind of comes through the universe in those in those little opportune misunderstandings sure the uh i was reading an essay and it makes this an argument that the influence of Tolkien on rock and roll, the idiom of rock and roll, is exceeded only by the influence of the Beatles, Phil Spector, and Bob Dylan. Um, mm. And that his influence exceeds that of the Velvet Underground, Brian Wilson, and Hendrix. So, um, and it proceeds to make a long, detailed case for that. So it's actually, it looks like a fairly interesting piece, but... Okay, you'll have to send that to me. Not now your mention of Brian Wilson makes me wish for a Blake Hobbit themed album. I think that they, they could have done something interesting like that. Hobbit sounds. I think exactly. Yeah, that would definitely, it would definitely uh, be good. I don't know if Gollum surfs. I don't know if Gollum surfs. So that would be well, yes, he does. I mean, it's, it's a still pond, but he does paddle that thing across the underground lake. So that is, that is surfing, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of all the Beach Boy jokes I can make right now, but I think luckily, uh, I think you're going to be spared. I can't think of any. Um, there must be must be some other crowd surfing, crowdsourcing. Well, you know, the um, it seems to me that Zack Snyder, like no matter mm-hmm. what he's doing right now, he should stop and just do Kickstarter movies because I think I've never seen a filmmaker stir a very specific and adamant following Mm-hmm. was so focused on their work. Although, you know, without DC Comics, it'd be, you know, I don't know that they'd be as interested in him doing uh, other other things that are outside the DC universe. Uh, no, I think that would be good, especially because I think he wants to do Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, right? Or at least he did at some point. You know, I, I, I've talked to Zach a lot over, over the years, uh, and I don't, recall him ever saying that but uh it, okay i i remember it, it, reading it may, about it but. it may well be the case though i mean he's you know he's done a lot of different things and has a lot of different interests uh, i just don't know that one specifically off the top yeah. of my head. that would be interesting because ayn rand's objectivist followers do have like i think they have a track record of crowdfunding things they crowdfunded the trilogy of low budget atlas shrug movies and even just i feel like I'm not an objectivist, but just the aesthetics of the fountainhead, all the art deco and, and the real possibility to realize something fantastic with the CGI. Yeah. Uh, I'd kind of want to see that. So, yeah, yeah, that, it would be interesting. I mean, you know, um, Zach is, is such a, a visual stylist, you know, it, mm-hmm. so much of what he does is um, moving things across the screen in a really interesting way. I mean, that's, 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 he loves the look of things. I've, I've seen his storyboards that he does, which are amazing, which he's he kept private for many, many years. He never lo- uh, let people see them publicly, but I saw that he's loosened up about that on his recent project. But, you know, I, I, I'd have to think about the sequence of that, the sequences that he could achieve on the screen. But I, I, he, I can't see him doing a movie where mostly there's talking uh, just because he's such a, a kinetic mm-hmm. tour, you know? Um, yeah, and I think he's a good fit for Ayn Rand's work because her philosophy is so glorifying of the human body and athleticism and activity. Yeah, like, you know, those kind of 30s era, you can see them on buildings, but like you can tell it was made in the 30s because it's got this jacked dude, like 
holding up a building or like um, building a railroad or something. I mean, those kinds of uh, murals and stuff are have a lot in common with her. Like I even associate her with some of the like Marxist and communist working class murals from Latin America, despite her condemnation and misunderstanding of, of those movements. Like if you, if she talked to them, they'd, she'd have a lot in common with like Diego Rivera and stuff. So. Yeah. 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 I think that some of the aesthetics certainly would, the Venn diagram of what looks good on the side of a building would definitely overlap. Uh, and with that, the Euro iconography, the heroic ideal yeah. and stuff and that sort of Greek ideal kind of would end with Zach, you know, 300 yeah. certainly fits, fits that. Yeah. I think, I think uh, that would be really interesting to see. I think the crowdsourcing, if the Kickstarter started with the fans and then, yeah. and they put it together and then, uh, it, then it, you know, creators were approached by saying like, here's, you know, 14 million people want you to do this next and, mm-hmm. and something with that analogy. Yeah. You really have to wonder if like, we're going to see like um, a studio start mining their, their, their back properties, their IP, you know, and just letting people put together a fan crafted pitch for like, Hey, here, we want a remake of, you know, um, time bandits. And if enough people sign up for it and, and uh, get behind it, you can see the studio doing sort of a tailored, low-risk, bespoke kind of mm-hmm. uh, projects where it, it's almost uh, the tipping point is is fan interest, you know. And if you look at like Veronica Mars and some of the things that happened in the past with like when fans crusade uh, for return or revival, mm-hmm. um, I think we just see that happen in a lot more uh, kind of structured way. And that's kind of fun. That's kind of cool. I, I, I like that. I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm still of the idea that uh, Christopher Nolan should do a remake of Pink Floyd, The Wall, because he's such a big mm-hmm. Alan Parker fan and because I think it would look really cool. And I know that he loves the original movie. Um, so like in a world where people get to pitch ideas like that, uh, maybe that's only one, one click, well, maybe a couple million clicks away. <laughs> or the right algorithm you know if they've got algorithms that can imitate the script of a certain writer or the look of a certain artist you know maybe they can one day make movies and maybe one day you can chill out to to combine the wall and christopher nolan <laughs> wow that's interesting I, it makes me nervous i did a story once years ago for uh, when i was at the la times about um this guy sillerman who was one of the uh, big uh, entertainment industry entrepreneurs and impresarios. And he uh, was uh, buying the digital imagery of Elvis, all the, all the images of Elvis mm-hmm. and, and getting control of the estate and different parts of the, the estate. And uh, with the idea that they would make all these new Elvis movies just by, since they have all the things he ever said that they could turn that into a digital alphabet and then have him say new lines and, and, you know, make a whole new series of films that uh, he could act in, even though uh, they were produced well after his death. And uh, I don't know, I get it, but I don't know if I like it, but mm. I don't know if it's, I don't know if anybody's going to ask me my opinion either. 
I think it would be cute if it was like animated or something. That way it wouldn't be on Canny Valley, you know, as long as you accept that it's like a fictional Elvis character, kind of like Johnny Bravo. Ah, that yeah. would be fun, but. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Or if he's like Max Headroom, if people knew that he was a digital Elvis. Now that's, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's a little meta, but uh, I think it was more like clam bake too, you know, or, uh, 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 you know, uh, Kid Galahad, uh, you know, revisited, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Or they could do that. Wasn't he going to do Star is Born? Yeah, I think that's right. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. He's going to do a lot of things. Um, and he made like, you know, more than 40 films. Uh, yeah. When he probably should have been still making music. That's that's like the Beatles with Lord of the Rings. Uh well, then you just have a crowdsourced petition to have Elvis stop making films and start making music. Exactly, exactly, uh, exactly. And uh, get him back where he belonged. Crowdsourced uh, to have Elvis do Fire by Bruce Springsteen, which was written for him. Hmm. It was written for him. Huh. Yeah. Then I think he died. Yeah, yeah. And the Pointer Sisters did it. Yeah. And which is catchy. I like the catchy one. I like the, the Bruce one that they re-released a couple of years back. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's a terrific song. Yeah. I, but yeah, we need to fund these algorithms to make all these alternate realities accessible. Yeah. And then I think that the realities will cross so much that the simulation overlords won't know what to do and it'll all crash and we'll just <laughs> end up somewhere with the Beatles and Lord of the Rings costumes and Lou Reed in the Lord of the Rings and Jodorowsky's Dune and all sorts of like the Island of Lost Toys, but where all of our realities, Marvel's what if. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's so many of these Lord of the Rings that would be in this imagined universe. And another one is the, uh, the Maurice Sendak, you know, he and, and Tolkien were in communication about uh, an adaptation of Lord of the Rings that, and it, I've seen the art and it looked really, really terrific, but they got into the weeds uh, on, on some of the characters and uh, their, the visual, uh, I think it, it rubs Sendak wrong. He felt like uh, he wasn't given his proper respect, but mm. uh, yeah, there's for, uh, even though there's only one true ring, there's seems to be quite a few of them uh, that, that almost made it uh, to reality. Mm -hmm. it says a lot about whatever Tolkien has hardwired into the center of that story that uh, it appeals to so many interesting people, you know? Well, fantastic. It's, uh, we shall see how the future goes. And, um, you know, until we get all those Elvises uh, out of the multiverse and back onto the screen, I guess we'll just have to just wait to see how it all unfolds. Mm -hmm. So in a couple of years, when reality folds upon itself and collapses and sprawls out in an infinite plane of psychedelic conjunctions, you can blame Zoop. Check out Zoop. <laughs> Check it out while you can, before the end of reality. That's All right, see you. Bye. Hey, take care.